0: of doing justice. Now as we listen to those verses being read this morning, uh, Luke 6 verses 36 to 42, it really does sound like a very loose collection of bits and pieces. So uh, we have Jesus um, giving us four commandments: do not judge, do not condemn, uh, forgive, give and it will be given to you in good measure. Uh, we have two parables about blind people. One blind man leading another blind man, a man with a log in his eye trying to get a speck of sawdust out of his friend's eye and then a saying about Jesus and disciples between them. It's quite common in the Gospels, in fact, for Jesus to say things obliquely. He often tells stories. He often uses proverbs that don't have a straightforward meaning and he often gathers things that don't seem to go together really well, and put them in one place. We're always being challenged to listen and consider carefully. And uh, that means Jesus' words, particularly today, require a bit of humble attentiveness. Really, we have two types of material uh, placed alongside each other today. We have commands to justice on the one hand, and we have parables of blindness on the other, And the thing that unites them both together, as we're going to see, is this idea of compassion. Let's begin with Jesus' commands to justice. Well, if the golden rule is the most widely known of Jesus' sayings uh, in in the world today, uh, then perhaps the, the saying of Jesus that has the most currency or the most value right now is found here in verse 37. Do not judge and you will not be judged or the form that people know probably better from the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge lest you be judged. Well, Luke, uh, Jesus strengthens this in Luke 6 by adding three other very similar statements. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Uh, forgive, and you will be forgiven, which is not the theological concept of forgiveness of sins. It's actually Uh, the legal concept of releasing someone from custody or quitting them from charges. So it probably reads more like, drop the charges and the charges against you will be dropped. And then this very general statement, give and it will be given to you in good measure. Well, We'll come back to consider those in a minute. You know, for the moment though, nothing is more important uh, or more popular in our society at the moment than the idea that nobody has the right to judge another person's preferences. Uh, The fierce debate that's going on in our society at the moment around issues like racial identity, gender identity, sexual preference, are all prefaced by the idea that the individual's choice is sovereign. Uh, And as our current census showed us that Australia becomes less and less Christian and more and more secular, we're finding that uh, traditional sources of absolute moral authority are being rejected in favour of the authority of the choosing individual. Uh, and that's probably uh, not better illustrated than the events that we saw happening in the US this week, um, as the whole debate around the legality of abortion was was brought up again. Uh, this is not so much a debate about Roe versus Wade as as a debate between the individual versus traditional religious morality and even perhaps the individual versus the state. So what we have now are individual value judgments that have replaced absolute statements of value. Um, And perhaps once where uh, it was widely agreed that moral statements that the church might put forward moral statements that came from god and the bible were kind of beyond questioning weren't to be criticized well now we're in a place where individual choice is revered beyond criticism or questioning so i'm no longer allowed to judge let alone uh, condemn another person's view that i don't approve of and the catchword for that is The big sin in our culture now is intolerance. Um, To be fair, though, uh, there is a very heightened awareness, a strong concern in secular society for issues of social justice. And we as Christians are not in a great position to argue with this because our own track record hasn't been great. Um, People are very aware how... Uh, Both the institutional church and individual Christians have often used God's authority as a cover for all sorts of injustice that has been practised against others and often done in alliance with secular authority. Stephen gave a really good example of this in one of his talks on sexuality uh, where he pointed out that in the 1800s in the southern US, the church there defended African slavery on the basis of appeals to the Bible. So we don't have a great reputation these days. And in fact, we're even divided amongst ourselves. So in some quarters, there are those who think that Christendom still ought to be able to impose its set of values and morals on society as a whole, on the basis that what's biblical must be obeyed. And As evangelicals, we're particularly attracted to that idea at times. But then in other quarters are those who feel compelled to agree with the ethics of tolerance, that not only should we not be imposing biblical ethics on other people, but in fact we should be revising biblical ethics uh, to make them fall into step with current values and current opinions. But there is a problem with the current cultural narrative that we need to expose. You see, it's all uh, very well to insist on tolerance, as if tolerance is about creating space for everyone's point of view to have value. Because once everyone's individual value judgment is accepted as special and valuable, then in fact, nobody's value judgment ends up being special or valuable. And as Christians, we've known this for a long time. Because when the secular world tells us, well, you know, Muhammad and Buddha, Jesus, Confucius, they're all correct. Well, we know, in fact, that that's a statement that none of them are correct because they're all mutually exclusive. They all contradict one another. So one of the problems we face in the present culture wars as a society is the insistence that nobody can claim Uh, Absolute moral authority to pass judgment on another person is itself an absolute claim to moral authority that that assumes for itself the right to pass judgment on other people's values. So the actual concept of the sovereignty of the individual's personal value judgments is facing a bit of an impasse. It's going to come undone. It's it's a bit like the monkey sitting on the very branch that he's soaring off. So in saying, do not judge, do not condemn, well, Jesus is neither being tolerant, like society is, but nor is he robbing individuals of their freedom to choose. And once again, we have to listen very carefully to Jesus' words here, Lest we risk seriously misunderstanding what he's saying. Um, this word "judge" in, in Greek, like in English, it it, um, it it means well. It means what it means. It's a neutral term. In fact, it means to decide. It means to discern. It means to exercise the ability to choose correctly between what is right and what is wrong. That's what a judge does. They look at the evidence in front of them. Uh, And they decide where blame lies or where blame doesn't lie. But unfortunately, in English, judge has taken on a negative uh, flavour. And now when we hear judge, we actually hear the word condemn. But that's not what Jesus is saying. When he tells us, when he gives us the command, do not judge, he's not telling us that we should stop evaluating claims to truth. In fact, Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're urged to judge in the proper sense, to be discerning, to weigh things up, to seek the truth, to choose wisely between what is right and what is wrong. Well, In the story we heard from John chapter 8, a woman who is caught in the act of committing adultery is brought to Jesus. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees press Jesus to make a judgment Based, of course, on the law of Moses, which insists that adulterers be stoned to death. What Jesus does here is surprising because he doesn't disagree with the law, but he does disagree with their right to prosecute the law. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. He then returns to writing something in the dirt. And when he eventually looks up again, um, the teachers and the Pharisees are gone. Has no one condemned you? He asked the woman. No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus has not condemned this woman, but he has rightly judged her situation as sinful. Now, this is a story that's often taken as evidence of Jesus' open acceptance of all who come to him, and quite rightly so, but What this is not evidence of is Jesus' unquestioning, value-free judgment of all who come to him. Leave your life of sin is, after all, a clear call to repentance. And we shouldn't miss that. Repentance is an important part of Jesus' announcement of the good news. So the kingdom of God absolutely challenges the authority of individual value judgments, but at the same time, it challenges my eagerness to judge others. And that's where Jesus' parables come to bear. Two dark comedies about blindness. Let's look at the second parable first, verses 41 and 42. Well, this takes up where Jesus' words about judging leave off. With a fool of a hypocrite, who thinks he's going to remove a speck of sawdust from his friend's eye when he himself is hindered by what is literally you know, a roof beam in his own eye. Now, if you can remember the last time you got a little bit of dirt or an eyelash in your eye, you'll remember there was probably a whole lot of watering going on, there was probably a whole lot of muscle spasm. Uh, you wouldn't want to be the person trying to land an aeroplane at that point. So if a little speck can render you functionally sightless, how blind do you think you are if you've got an entire log in your eye? The man with the log is in no position to help his friend. But he foolishly thinks that his friend's dilemma needs a lot more attention than his own dilemma. The first parable, similar in verse 39, it's the picture of one blind person attempting to give direction and guidance on the road to another blind person. And you know it's not going to end well. They're both going to end up in a ditch. Well, in both parables, the blindness of the main character rends them incapable of either giving guidance or rendering help. And both those who need help and those who are offering help a blind, guide and follower, guy with a speck, guy with a log. So the, the ridiculousness of those stories highlights the reason why Jesus' disciples are neither to judge nor condemn. We're not actually in a position to offer ultimate judgment on people's lives. We cannot see properly. We we are unable to look at another person's situation and discern its beginning from its end. We're simply not in possession of the full story uh, of each life that we encounter. And some of you have probably met, some of you probably are, um, people that would have once been considered the least likely person to become a Christian. To To have judged you at that point in your life would have been to foreclose on you. We wouldn't have had all the evidence. Perhaps more importantly, we also cannot see properly into people's hearts. I mean, we can see the results of people's decisions, but we can't see the full extent of their own internal motives. And even if we could see all of those things, we still would not be privy to God's intentions in all those matters. So like the helpers in the parables, we're finally not in a position to render final judgments on people's lives. Do not judge. Do not condemn. Well, the characters in these parables are also blind in another respect because they themselves are in need. So what does it mean in Luke's Gospel to be blind. It's a common uh, common image in Luke's Gospel. Well, let's remember that Jesus' Sermon on the Plain began in the context of his announcement of the arrival of God's kingdom back in Luke 4 with words he chose very carefully from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Now, in Isaiah's preaching, who were the blind? Well, the blind were the nation of Israel, whose long-cultivated habits of sin had rendered them both blind and deaf, both oppressed and captive. And so they had become like the deaf, blind, dumb idols of wood and stone, that they had put their trust in. Blindness becomes a really good description for their dilemma at this point. And likewise in Luke's Gospel, Jesus uses Isaiah's image of blindness as an apt way to describe the dilemma that faces humanity as a whole. So being blind is symbolic of the dilemma of being sinful. Sin renders us blind. We cannot see properly in any sense. But God does. He alone correctly perceives the beginning from the end of every matter. That's why Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the who is and who was and who is to come. Furthermore, Father, Son and Holy Spirit alone see clearly into the intentions of every human heart. As the liturgy says, Almighty God, uh, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires are known, from whom no secrets are hid. And God sees every matter clearly in relation to every other matter. He alone possesses the wisdom to discern rightly and make judgments as to what is ultimately good and ultimately Bad. So, right here is the end to both moralism, my attempts to put people into moral straitjackets, and to tolerance, my insistence that my personal value judgments rule the day. So, how are we then to live in the world of Jesus' disciples? How are we to negotiate these two extremes between moralism on the one hand? and tolerance on the other well the key word here which pulls Jesus' commands and his parables together is the word we found in verse 36 which I've translated as compassion Luke 6:36, be compassionate just as your father is compassionate verse 36 is actually a hinge verse so although there's a nice paragraph division there in your Bible with a nice little heading in fact All of this is bound together by this word compassion. It binds what Jesus has to say about being children of God with respect to loving our enemies to what Jesus goes on to say about mercy and justice in verse 37. Now if you've got your Bible open in front of you, most of you uh, will have the word merciful in front of you in verse 36 rather than compassionate, which is the word I used. And far be it from me to disagree with expert New Testament translators, except that they're wrong. Um, because the translation merciful here, you know, misses a really important allusion to a key Old Testament text that Jesus' listeners would have heard at this point, and which, in fact, the same translators will translate with the word compassionate in the Old Testament. Exodus 34.6. And the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. Here's a text that echoes throughout the Old Testament. It's the key text behind Psalm 103, which we heard this morning. And here God defines himself both in terms of his justice and in terms of his compassion. Because on the one hand, he's the judge who deals punishment to the guilty and even has just cause for anger. But on the other hand, here is the God who is merciful? Who is compassionate? So the problem with the, the English word merciful is, I think, today it it often connotes a negative idea. It's the idea of uh, a judge being lenient to an offender, or of some disaster being averted from someone who really actually deserves it. To be honest, but the biblical notion behind the word merciful actually connotes something positive, and that's why I like the word compassion. Better. It's a word that seeks the positive good of another person. And in English, compassion literally means to suffer with. Compassion is that quality that enters into and shares the experience of another person. Jesus commands us to be compassionate because our Father is Compassionate. And nowhere is God's compassion better seen than in the person of Jesus. God entering into our experience, becoming flesh to live as we must live, being baptized, entering into our sins to then bear them on the cross in our place. You know, compassion isn't some theoretical attribute that theologians talk about. Compassion is the bone and flesh action of God who stoops to our position to bear what we must bear in order to save us out of it. And the cross of Jesus then is the correct meeting place between both God's justice and God's compassion. Because at the cross, just judgment is declared upon sin. Here is the true declaration of what is not good. The cross trumps all my personal moral value judgments. But at the cross of Jesus, we also have the God who is not trying to simply wrestle us into a moral straitjacket. Here is God stepping down from on high, in compassion, in other, in, in. Uh, in to make us free, thank you. So that leads us back to consider the two verbs that we haven't given much attention to yet in Luke 6. Forgive, in verse 37, and give, in verse 38. Well, as I mentioned before, forgive, this is not the New Testament word that you find for forgiveness of sin. It's not the theological word, it's the very practical word that means to set free from custody, to acquit from charges. So Jesus, in fulfilling his Isaiah commissioned to bring freedom for prisoners and the oppressed is doing just that. The whole story of salvation is about God's compassion at work to set people free. And this word give, give and it will be given back to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. Um this has nothing particularly to do with justice this is this this is god's compassion opened right out into his intention to bless people freely even in uh, exodus 34:6 in in the ancient near eastern culture in which god is speaking to moses here he determines to limit punishment for sin by not carrying it any further than the third or fourth generation But on the other hand, his love is expressed to thousands. How many people do you think you generate in three or four generations compared to the thousands that God shows his love to? Big raspberry in support of that one. Excellent. So in other words, God's justice is carried out within limits while his love is expressed without limit. Be compassionate as your Father in heaven is compassionate. And finally, the last thing that Jesus has to say here in verse 40. He says, Students are not above their teacher, but all who are fully trained will be like their teacher. In other words, the disciples of Jesus are to be like Jesus. Neither condoning sin, nor issuing condemnation, but we are to be the people who step into the experience of others in compassion. Even to the extent that it might cost us dearly, as it cost him dearly. And so, you know, in the current cultural moment that we're living in, I think the world is watching us with suspicious eyes. And how we conduct ourselves at this point in history is going to be really crucial to our witness. Today, Jesus gives us the word which, above all other words, should guide us in our interactions in the midst of culture wars, in the midst of our current unpopularity. And that's the word compassion. The Lord be with you.